It's been a nice time of worship already. There is one other thing that um, we do on the first Sunday, which is we have a collection for the Benevolence Fund. And the Benevolence Fund, in case you're not familiar, is a way that we help people in our own church and people we know uh, with physical needs um, locally here. And that's currently overseen by our deacons, which uh, Gary is the chairman of, Gary Dernland. So if you have a need that you find out about or you have yourself um, that uh, you want the deacons to consider, then let Gary know and the deacons will consider the decision. So uh, at the end of the service, we'll have a couple deacons standing by the back door with some plates. That's what that's for um, if you want to give into the deacons' uh, benevolent fund. So, all right, we'll move on to the sermon this morning, um, our third sermon in the series on the book of Deuteronomy. We're still in chapter one, and uh, the title of the message this morning is The Cost of Disobedience, and I'm going to begin with reading the passage this morning, which is a little bigger chunk of scripture than I normally would preach on, but it's a long narrative, and so I will read the whole thing. And then we'll get into finding some lessons in it. Um, In case you missed the last week or two, the sermons are available to listen to at our website, oasisfl.org. And since each sermon in this series is going to be building off of previous lessons, it may be helpful to you, if you have missed any of them, to uh, to check there and listen on the website. Also, I've begun a blog on the website where I'm going to be offering some follow ups and previews. in the sermon series and maybe other things as well, other topics at times. So be checking on that website. We'll be continuing to hopefully update it and enhance it. As a quick recap of where this passage falls, Moses is addressing the people of Israel. Uh, These are the people who were left after 40 years in the desert place. The older generation had passed away. They had not been allowed to enter the promised land because of their lack of faith. And Moses is recalling for them part of the history that happened since the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Now last week we saw that Moses recalled how he appointed leaders. Now we know this was based partly on the advice of his father-in-law Jethro. Um, And Moses asked the people to select wise, understanding, and experienced men that he would then appoint as heads. And there were to be judges at all levels of society who were to be fair. And when they could not handle a case, they could bring it to Moses. Now, in our passage this morning, Moses is continuing this speech to the people. So I'll pick it up at verse 19 and read to the end of the chapter. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. 
Then all of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us, and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up, and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskel and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. And I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents, in fire by night and in the cloud by day, to show you by which way you should go. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to them, to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to all his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me the Lord was angry on your account, and said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, And your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up and fight, or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, But the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh for many days, the days that you remained there. So in the first few verses I just read, we see that the people had gone through that great and terrifying wilderness. In my studies, I read that the landscape there truly is difficult. There's sharp rocks, there's snakes, not a nice place. Compared to southern Florida, it would be a very different place. No flowering trees or palms to be found there. No mango trees or avocado trees. No star fruit. Just barren land with lots of difficulties and pain. 
But through this land, the people of Israel went and made it to the place where they were to enter into the promised land. And Moses tells the people in verse 21, See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. After all the miracles the people had seen, the mighty hand of God in the plagues of Egypt, the plundering of the Egyptian people who feared God and gave to the Israeli people all their jewels, and after seeing the Red Sea parted and walking through it and looking back and seeing the army of Pharaoh, horse and rider, thrown into the sea, and after seeing God's pillar of fire and his clouds to guide them, and after seeing Moses return from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, after all these amazing miracles, their faith must have been strong. They must have been ready to trust God and Moses, his servant, for their very lives, right? Well, not exactly. Now the people want to have a team go and make sure the land is good. So in verse 22, it says, they all, all of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up in the cities until into which we shall come. Now, in the normal course of things, if you were sending and growing your country into a land that you didn't know, that wouldn't be so much of a problem. When the United States bought the Louisiana Purchase, which more than doubled the area of the nation, they sent Lewis and Clark to explore the land, to map it out, to make a report of what resources were out there and what obstacles. We just lived before we moved here in a place where they were at, Lewis and Clark. And so there's some history there. But But this is not the Louisiana Purchase we're talking about. This is the promised land. Who promised the land? The true and dependable, never-failing creator God. And so the people asking for scouts to go out after all they had witnessed about God's power and faithfulness may be a mark of disbelief. And we will see that disbelief is really the sin that kept them from the promised land. Just as disbelief keeps people from receiving eternal life through Jesus Christ. Today. Now, Moses doesn't put all the blame on the people here. He said it, he also thought it was okay in verse 23. The thing seemed good to me, so, and, I, and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. Now, God has also, had also given his stamp of approval on this. Um, in thir- Numbers 13, we see, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man every one a chief among them. The command had been given to go in and possess, but God also allowed this to happen, that the spies would be sent in. They went in and discovered that the land was really good. It was fruitful. The spies even said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Well, then let's go, right? It looks good. God has kept his promise. Let's go. Well, no, they would not go. Verse 26, yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And here we see their sin compounded. It would have been bad enough if these people had seen the power of God and were scared. It would have been bad enough if they wavered and had uncertainty. But now they compound their sin by murmuring and really making accusations against the holy God. 
Verse 27, you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Slight exaggeration there, right? And besides, we have seen these sons of Anakim there. God had proven himself through the miraculous signs they saw. He proved to them that he had brought them to a good land. But they either do not believe God can fight with them or they're too lazy to go up and be part of the fight. Whatever their various reasons are, they continued their rebellion by murmuring. This murmuring is so sinful. Not so much because they didn't believe Moses, but because they don't believe God. Matthew Henry said, He shows them how fair they stood for Canaan at that time. He told them with triumph, This land is set before you. Go up and possess it. He lets them see how near they were to a happy settlement when they put a bar in their own door that their sin might appear the more exceedingly sinful. It will aggravate the eternal ruin of hypocrites that they were not far from the kingdom of God and yet come short. Mark 12.34. And what does Mark 12.34 that Matthew Henry points to say? It says, When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, this lesson had been used and has been used by some in the church throughout history to say that rebellion against a leader in the church is wrong and is pushed even further to say you can never question the authority of a pastor or leader in the church. But note that the problem really isn't so much regarding their trust of Moses, although God had clearly affirmed Moses to be their leader, the real offense is not believing God himself. I don't want anyone to make a career of criticizing me by any means. But asking questions of leadership is not a punishable offense in the church. And many churches have ultimately fallen because the culture of the church was to protect the leader at all costs. Don't question him. Don't criticize. Just do what he says. This is the wrong application of this passage. It is not saying that at all. The reason people were guilty of not doing what Moses said is because what Moses said was a direct command from God. And no pastor today has that same authority unless it's written in Scripture. When it comes to God's word, if the pastor is preaching it, you do have a responsibility to obey it. Not because of the pastor who preaches it, but because it's God's word. Maybe you don't like some decision the pastor or the board has made. It's fair to ask questions. So long as you don't have a rebellious spirit, I'm by no means perfect. I'll make mistakes. I will make decisions that frustrate someone. I get that. And I'm not bothered if you disagree. And I can still love and get along with people I disagree with on certain things. But when it comes to God's word, I will not compromise. If you, and you need to obey God, not man. So I throw that into the sermon. Why do I throw that into the sermon? Because sometimes it's important to point out what a particular passage is not saying especially when it's been preached that way. And this passage is not saying that all church leaders are like Moses with the authority he had to command. However, teachers and preachers and pastors can and should tell the people in their care what God's word says. Not twisting it and using it for spiritual manipulation, but for the building of the church and equipping the saints 
to do the work of the ministry. So the people are afraid of the Amorites, and their hearts have melted, and they sat around in their tents murmuring. How frustrating this must have been for Moses. And yet, he still encourages the people. He reminds them that the Lord will fight for them. Verse 29, Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God will go, who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. He reminds them of God's provision and God's protection. They've seen in many ways how God can take care of them. Verse 32, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. And now we're going to see the cost of that rebellion. Verse 34, and the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, not one of these men of this evil, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Only two men of that generation end up going into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. Caleb was one of the spies who said, We can take the land. It's curious to me what happened to the other spy. We don't see him mentioned that he gets to go. Joshua would go in because he was Moses' faithful assistant and the people needed a strong leader and he's the one that God chose to lead them into the promised land. Every other person in that generation would die in the desert never seeing the promised land. Their children and their grandchildren who were not considered to be accountable for this rebellion, they would go in. The general consensus I found in my studies is that most people said they think it's the ones that were 20 years old and younger. Caleb was also to be given the land that he spied out. And the completion of this promise you can find if you want to read about that later in Joshua chapter 14. And Moses himself would not go in. Verse 37, Even with me the Lord is angry on your account and says you shall not go in there. Now, Moses was not allowed to go in the promised land, but not for the same reason as the rest of them. We see the reason Moses did not go in in Numbers chapter 20, starting at verse 2, and I'll read that. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against, together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. And you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded them. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, 
Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the words of Meribah, these are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and though through and through them he showed himself holy. So Moses also did not get to go in the promised land, but for a different reason. But Joshua would replace Moses uh, as leader of the people and lead him in. Verse 38, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Interestingly, the people had given, as part of their reason that they didn't want to go in, the safety of their children. Oh, the children. We need to protect the children. But in the end, it would be those children who receive the land. Verse 39, As for your little ones who you said would become prey, and your children who you today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Possess it. Now the people are starting to understand what their rebellion has cost them. So now they say, okay, okay, we'll go up and fight. They have heard the sentence for their crime and now they want to plead with the judge that they will do the right thing now. It's like the employee whose boss had warned again and again, be sure to complete your work, be sure to complete your work. The boss gave a verbal warning, a written warning. Still the employee didn't complete the job and finally the boss says, I'm sorry, I have to let you go. You're fired. And now the employee says, well, I'm going to do it now. The boss says it's too late. The employee doesn't listen, refuses to leave the property, and goes to do the job anyway, even though they've already been fired. And now the boss has them arrested for trespassing. This is somewhat of a weak illustration for what was going on here. Verse 41, you answered me, we've sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do. Have you ever been chased by bees? Chased you as bees do and beat you down to Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. And you remained all the days you remained here. There's a couple of final lessons here. One is that confession does not necessarily remove the consequences of sin. If that were the case, we would never learn any lessons. The other lesson is that you, if you missed your opportunity for obedience, you might not get that same opportunity again. Upon realizing the very grave consequences they faced, they said, okay, okay, we'll go up. Well, now we'll obey the Lord's command. But it was too late. The opportunity had passed. So what would have been the right thing for them to do? Well, one thing they were missing, they were missing one key ingredient. Godly sorrow or godly grief. You see, there's a difference between a worldly sorrow or grief, and a godly grief, 
And that godly grief comes as a gift from God. Worldly grief means, I don't like the consequences, so I'm sorry. The heart is not grieved, the flesh is. It's a sadness that some comfort is going to be lost because of the sin. Godly grief is a broken heart over sin. Not so much because of the consequences of it, but because of a love for God and a feeling of failing him, sinning against him, it breaks the heart. Paul wrote how he had grieved the Corinthian church with one of his letters, but he rejoiced that they grieved because their grief was a genuine sign of faithfulness. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 8. And he says this, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For we foresee what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, and also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who's suffering the wrong, who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Confession does not necessarily remove the consequences of sin. These Israelites reacted to the news of their penalty for their sin. And that was a worldly grief. They grieved over the consequence, not their disobedience. But they had missed the opportunity to obey this particular command, to go up and possess the land. Rather, they were having true, rather than having true grief and saying, what then shall we do? As those who responded to Peter's sermon on Pentecost, they wanted to try to do the thing that they missed the window of opportunity to do. And that, that is the other lesson. Christians miss opportunities for obedience all the time. I have. You have. We all have. We all scream for ice cream. You, we know it, right? We know we've missed opportunities for obedience, and we regret that. You can't always go back and do the same thing. If I hurt someone in high school because of my words or actions, I may never be able to undo that. Not only do we lack a time machine to go back and do things better, we cannot undo the potential years of pain we cause someone else because of our carelessness. We can never know how our harsh words have seared someone in a way we never understood or intended. So what do we do? Well, first of all, we need a godly sorrow for our sin. And sometimes we don't feel it. Often our sorrow is more worldly. But we can continue to ask God to make our hearts sensitive. We can ask him to help us hate our sin more and desire holiness more. We can ask him to reveal to us our failures and show us the true consequences of our words and actions. So what do we do when we realize we missed an opportunity for obedience? We must ask God to humble us. 
Help us to have a true godly sorrow for our sins. And if the opportunity has passed by, and sometimes it has, we ask God to reveal to us a new opportunity for obedience, for growth. It's possible to make a serious error in disobeying God and to repent fully and yet have to suffer the consequences. This happens to people all the time. Sometimes people have consequences that last a lifetime for their sin. And it would be easy to think, that isn't fair, they repented. Why can't they get past the consequences? Well, the answer is both simple and complicated. The simple answer is that God works all to get things together for good for those who love him. So whether we see it or not, he's using those consequences in our lives to grow us to be more like him. And when we become more like him, we're doing his kingdom work. The more complicated answer is that how this is all working out, sometimes God only knows. We may see hints of what he's doing through the consequences we endure because of our sin. We may know we are growing and maturing, but only God really knows what each trial and consequence is doing to help us grow. So we need to trust him in that. So there's a lot to learn from these Israelites. Now, years ago, I would read a passage like this, and I would shake my head, and I'd wonder, why didn't they get it? Ah, they're so stubborn. They're so repetitive in their sin. How could they be so silly? The more I grow in the Lord, the more I realize how much like them I am. How much my own tendency is to disobey the word of God. Maybe I understand a little better what Paul meant when he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. We all live with consequences of disobedience in our lives, but by the grace of God, we are what we are. And with his grace, we are able to know that in the end, he will complete the good work he began in each of us and will continue to prepare his bride for the day when he comes to bring her home. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. 